Hello, you're listening to the podcast of Bay Ridge Christian Church. Each Sunday, our aim is to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ from the text of the Bible and to catalyze the hearts of our hearers to love and gratitude towards God and all of His creation. We hope you enjoy this teaching, and we pray that you will be encouraged to trust in Jesus today. Today's text is going to be Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Uh, Again, for those of you who are familiar, we normally teach in uh, series, and we're going to actually start kind of a mini-series that will run next week through the month of August uh, on the uh, means of grace. It's called Habits of Grace. We'll be starting that next week, and I encourage you to look forward to that as we'll talk about just the, the basic ways that we walk with God. But this week's the last of just a series of standalone teachings. This is not one that arose from a question. It's just something I've been kind of meditating on, and I'll even describe why in a little bit. So we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. I'll be using the NIV. It'll be up on the screen along with all the other scriptures I'll be talking about. I urge you to follow along. Hear now the word of the living God. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Back in January, um, I had the privilege, the, the church sent me over to Egypt to meet, uh, to do, to meet a, a bunch of the Christians who were suffering persecution over there to overview the persecution situation in Egypt. But clearly one of the highlights and most difficult portions of the trip was when we met the families of the Egyptian martyrs. The, there were 20 of them were Egyptian, and one was actually from Africa, another part of Africa. Uh, that There were 21 men that were killed on the beach by ISIS in the, the video that became so famous, the men in the orange jumpers there. And as we met them, it was obviously, you wonder what it's like for a family that there's no getting away from that type of suffering. I mean, they are reminded every day that their children, you know, their sons, their fathers, their brothers were martyred for their faith. And in fact, they were even reminded uh, quite a number of them were from one small congregation, a congregation that's smaller than our own, and they were somewhere on the order of like seven or ten, I can't remember the exact number, from that congregation. So if you can imagine if we were gathering for worship and in the last week we had lost seven men being martyred, and they actually had a picture of them on the church building. As you came into the compound there where the church building was, there was a photo of them kneeling on the beach about to be martyred. And they were reminded of that every single week. So that's, that's unspeakable suffering. And the question is, how do you keep hope in that kind of suffering? Because I have to tell you, they were actually quite filled with hope. How do you do that in the face of that kind of suffering? And Paul shows us how to do it in this text, and this is the exact answer they gave as well. So the two aren't unrelated to one another. Their answer for how they maintained hope, because the persecution continues. Two or three different days this week, I received notes from that section of Egypt where mobs were coming in and dragging Christians out in the street and beating them, and, uh, and some more Christians were killed just this week, this past week or two, in Egypt. How do you endure in the face of that? Well, let's take a look at what Paul tells us, and again, it was their answer as well. Now, we begin, I want you just first to recognize the astounding nature of Paul's statement that I just read. I read that And it's easy to read, but I want us to look at what Paul actually says. Notice the text again. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So notice Paul saying that the suffering of this age can't even compare with the glory that's going to come. And pay attention to unpack that just a little bit. It's not just that the glory is going to be better. Paul's not just saying, well... I weigh it out, and the suffering is really bad, but I think the glory is going to be a little bit better. That's not what he says. He says, I've, I've considered this. I've thought about this. I've looked at it. And our present sufferings, you can't even compare them with the glory that's going to come. There is no comparison between the two, Paul says. And not only that, it's hard to see this in the English, 
But the language Paul uses where he says, with the glory that will be revealed in us, that's not just a future tense that I think this is going to happen. The way Paul writes it in the Greek, he's stressing the certainty of this. Look, I have considered, I have thought about this, and there is no question. Here's the fact. Take it to the bank. All of our present sufferings, they're not even worth comparing to the glory that you can be absolutely sure is going to come, and it's going to be revealed in us. Now, that's Paul's statement, and to even up the ante a little bit, maybe Paul was just having a good week, and we could think, well, you know, he was feeling pretty optimistic that week. I I don't think so, because he was in jail when he wrote it, but let's just say that he was. I can up the ante, because this is not the only time Paul said this. In fact, Paul's written this statement before to the Corinthians. Of the same sort of a statement. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 4 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Now, Paul's doing a play on words here because the Hebrew word for glory, chavod, is actually the same word. It means weighty. That's what glory means. It means to have weight. It's something that's of substance. And so Paul, even though he's writing in Greek, he's playing off of that concept. And he says, look, your troubles are light. When you put them on the scale, they're like dust on the scale. But the glory that's being worked in us and is going to come, that glory is weighty. It's heavy. C.S. Lewis did a famous sermon that's really worth reading if you can look it up called The Weight of Glory, where he played off of this text. And notice Paul says not only that, but our troubles are not only light, they are momentary. But the glory is heavy, it's weighty, and it is eternal. And so because the one is light, the other is heavy, the one is temporary, the other is eternal, Paul says it far outweighs it. There, once again, is no comparison between the glory and the problems. So again, we look back at Romans 8.18. This is our text. So I've thought about this. Our present sufferings aren't worth comparing. They are dust on the scales, and we got the weightiest stuff in the whole universe set on the scale on the other side. There is no comparison. Now, Paul says this, but I want to take a couple of minutes, and I want you to think about the suffering that is going on in this world. Okay? The suffering that is happening in this world. First, I'm just going to list a number of things. There is global poverty on a crushing scale. As you and I sit here right now, 1.2 billion people, okay, almost, it's 22% of the world's population live on less than $1.25 a day. $1.25 a day. Now, we're spending a couple hundred dollars this morning keeping this room cool for us. That would take virtually everybody's income in here if we were making a buck 25 a day just for that hour. There's no money left for food. There's nothing when you go home. But if you double it and say, well, what about if it's two and a half dollars a day? That's 2.7 billion people. 2.7 billion that's almost, that's probably eight times the population of the entire United States. Two and a half bucks a day. Now, you might say, well, in some of these places that you don't need as much money as we do, and that would be true, but I don't care where you live, two and a half bucks a day doesn't cut it. Doesn't cut it. That's their reality every day. Tomorrow they're going to wake up and they're going to make another, it's literally going to be another day, another dollar. What about early death for children? In sub-Saharan Africa, a child is 15 times more likely to die before the age of five than in a developed region on the earth. 
15 times more likely. I've got soon to be an eighth grandchild here, and they're all five and under. The odds of them making it to five in sub-Saharan Africa are not good. Not good. I've been to Niger where the average life expectancy is 41 years. But that is not because people are dying at 40. If you make it past five there, you've got a good chance of making it to 70, 75. You see lots of 70 and 75-year-olds walking around. The problem is your odds of making it to five are not good. They're really not good at all. Um, many of the, uh, and actually this past year, you'd be surprised at this, how many of you in here have ever had malaria? Anybody? Know anybody who's had malaria? Did you know 438,000 people died from malaria in 2014, the most recent year of statistics? 438,000. 70% of those were children under five years old. So 300 something thousand of them from malaria because they got a mosquito bite. What about refugees? There are 65 million refugees right now. 33,000 people a day are forced to flee their homes. We're going to have another 33,000 added to that role today. And it's going to continue growing. And many of those people will never be able to return home. They are refugees forced out of not only their city or town, they're forced out of their country, out of their culture, out of anything that is familiar, not because they wanted to go, they had no choice but to go. What about terrorism? We all hear this today, right? That's something we didn't even think about 15 years ago, 20 years ago, but now we do. ISIS, Boko Haram, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda. I could keep adding to the list. These are groups who are wreaking terror, and it's becoming so commonplace, we're all aware, everybody's aware that there was a, a strike down in Orlando, right? The man declared allegiance to ISIS and then went in and killed the group of people. And you're all aware that there was the strike in Nice, France, right? How many of you are aware that in between those two, 250 people died in Baghdad in one terror strike? Do you even know that? We get so tired we don't even hear that it went on in Baghdad. 250 people died because a guy went to a Ramadan celebration and killed. They, they struck and attacked and killed 250 people. What about persecution of Christians? Paul is certainly, when we look at our text in Romans 8, Paul is including that. He's been talking about our sufferings and talking about persecution that is clearly included as part of the text. And it is a reality all the way down to our present day. Christians are being ostracized, harassed, imprisoned, and even killed in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, China, Morocco, North Korea, and the list could go on and on and on. Not what Christians here in America are complaining about, that somebody made fun of me, somebody elected a politician I didn't like. We're talking about going home and they have destroyed your house and they drug your mother out in the street and stripped her naked, burned your house, and killed your brother. That kind of persecution. And that is going on on a global scale. And even, in fact, when you move to some of the other problems we talked about, we were at a conference just a couple of weeks ago, the Bridge Conference, and they were discussing that one of the problems is when Christians have been forced to flee from ISIS, and they're even going into other countries, they are then persecuted by some of the other refugees so that they can't even stay in the refugee camps. And then when they're not in the refugee camps, they don't fall under UN guidelines, so they're no longer available to receive any kind of support. That's their, they're, they're twice displaced. That is a reality for them all the time. Now, those are things that are global. But what about in your own life? We've all got things. We're aware, and just our small congregation, we've had three people struggling with cancer in recent months. We've got folks who've had family members who are sick and seem to be on the, on the verge of death right now. 
a close friend of Linda and mine, just to give a, a little bit of our own personal thing, and you could add your own in. We've got a close friend who we've known for years has been having some issues. The doctors couldn't figure out what it was, and then they finally figured out our friend has ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. So she's headed into a couple of very horrific years, and then, barring a major miracle, certain death. I had a couple of weeks ago, my uncle, my uncle Butch, who had been fighting with stage four cancer for a couple of years, died. And when my father called to tell one of the kids, discovered that my uncle Butch's second son, my cousin Philip, had died at almost the exact same moment. Father and son had died, and we were getting the news, and we were dealing with it. And that was the morning after I had discovered what made me think of this text when I found that the husband of a young woman that I used to babysit when I was a midshipman, I would hold her in my arms and feed her, and she's in her early 30s. Her husband died in a kayaking accident on vacation while his wife and daughter watched. 33 years old. Wife and three kids are left behind. And at the funeral, his brother-in-law, who's a pastor, spoke on Romans 8.18, or he mentioned it. And that's part of what got my mind going. Now, you could add your own to this. This is a cheery topic, right? You're really glad you got out of bed on a Sunday morning. This is reality. This is not going to stop when you and I leave here today. So, we have to ask ourselves, I've taken the time to go through this litany because we can easily say things like, well, the glory to come is just better than what we've got right now. But how do you say that if you're honest about the sufferings that are going on now? How can Paul say this? Is he ignoring or minimizing suffering? Is Paul the original Brit and he's just expressing a stiff upper lip? Yeah, this is tough, but it's not that bad. Is that what Paul's doing? Or, or is it just some kind of wishful thinking? Is Paul deluded? Maybe Paul is just unaware that there really is suffering like this going on because Paul's lived a really blessed life. Or is there something more going on? And is it really, really true? that as bad as everything I just described is, there is something that far outweighs that. Let's take a look at what Paul says. With that as our backdrop, Paul says here in Romans 8.18, he's talking about our present age, which is characterized by sufferings. Notice he says, I consider that our present sufferings. And Paul's not, when he's using the term present sufferings, he doesn't mean, you know, the things that I'm going through right now. What Paul is talking about here is he's speaking of sufferings that are common to this age. He's comparing this age with the age to come. And this age is an age of suffering. Far from denying suffering, Paul would not listen to the list I just read and say, I wasn't aware of that. Paul would say, it's worse than you even know. There's even more to be done. And I'll go in a minute how Paul has personally experienced. Paul is not denying suffering. You know, that's one of the things Christian science actually says is there is no such thing as suffering. That's just a mental thing. I'll tell you what's a mental thing is that belief. Okay, that is mental. Suffering is real. And far from doing that, Paul is saying, look, not only is suffering real, it is part of the warp and the woof of this age. There's no way to get away from it. When you are in the, to continue that analogy, the quilt of this age, the warp and the woof, the whole way the thing is woven together is suffering. It is part of this present existence. And so, Paul would say, and he would shatter any idea of wishful thinking that we can somehow escape the suffering that is part of this age. There is a lot of silly theology out there today in the name of Christ that says if you learn the right formula, if you say the right thing, if you have enough faith, you'll escape suffering in this age. The apostle Paul would say, are you out of your mind? 
The apostle whose sufferings I'm going to read in just a moment would say, it's not possible. It is part of this age. It is part of this fallen world. And in fact, here's a bit of cheery good news for you. Christians are not only not exempt from this suffering, in fact, we can expect more. Because if the age to come is broken into your life and into mine, for multiple reasons, you're going to be more acutely aware of the suffering than you ever were before. And you're going to experience more of it both internally and from outside than you ever were before. Now, if I write a book to do that, I'll sell like three copies because I'll convince my parents to buy them. Okay? Because nobody wants to hear that. You put that up on YouTube video, there'll be no hits. Okay? But it's true. I can sell a lot of books if I promise you a formula to escape from this. But friends, there is no such formula. This stuff is real, and Paul would say, you're not going to get out of this. As Christians, we can actually expect more persecution from the world. Those folks in Egypt have a way out of their suffering. Just simply deny Christ. Suffering stops. They're suffering more because of their faith not less. And most Christians in human history would look at you if you said being a Christian is the way to escape suffering. They would say, what What are you talking about? I didn't have any until I came into Christ. And then suddenly the whole world was against me, which by the way, is a Jesus promise you can hang on your mirror. If they have treated me this way, how much more so will they do this to you? They treated the teacher this way. What do you think they're going to do to his disciples? The promise from our God who does not let his promises fail. We've also got the struggle with sin. We'll see this in Paul's life. I was at peace with my sin until I came to Christ. And now I'm acutely aware that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And it's not just that the guys working in ISIS are not the way they're supposed to be. I'm not the way I'm supposed to be. I have desires that aren't supposed to be there, and I know it's not supposed to be that way, and they are still pulling against me. And I say and I do stupid, hurtful things, and I fall short, and I realize this every day. And here's a bit of bad news. The longer I work with Jesus, walk with Jesus and the more he works in my life, the more acute that becomes. The closer I crawl to the light, the more junk I realize I've got inside of me. I wrestle and struggle with sins and problems. I didn't even, I was blissfully ignorant of them 15 years ago. Just wallowing in it and not even aware it was a problem. And on top of that, as a believer with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and the foretaste of glory, you're more and more aware this is not how it's supposed to be. I've, I've been to the other side. I've seen a glimpse of the other side and it makes me more acutely aware what a mess all of this is. So for all of those reasons, Contrary to what many popular guys will say, if you're going to walk with Jesus, your suffering is not going to be less. It's going to be more. And if you don't like that, I don't know what else to tell you. I don't have plan B. I don't have another gospel. Except for what we're going to come to, what I will tell you is what Paul's going to say. Now, let me point out here, Paul is fully well aware of this because he experienced it all in his life. And whatever level of suffering you have dealt with, Paul has dealt with more, okay? I'm not going to put this scripture up, but if you remember, how would you like this? The day that Paul got saved, Jesus knocks him off the horse, and he sends Ananias his way after Paul's been blind for three days. And Ananias comes in and says, look, the Lord told me to come here because he said he has a special call for you. He's going to show you how much you can suffer. He's picked you out. 
And he's going to show how much suffering one guy can do for Jesus. Welcome to the family. Am I making that up? That's Paul. Paul, baby Christian, just came to the faith. This is God's message to him. Okay? And God fulfilled his word. Here's what Paul went through as his suffering. First off, Paul now had to realize in that moment, oh my gosh, I have persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. I have been the instrument to cause untold suffering on God's people. In Acts 26, verse 9, Paul, in one of his sermons, says this, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Can you imagine how that pains the apostle? That had been his purpose. Verse 10, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the saints, saints, the holy ones, in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. Paul is not unaware of suffering. Paul says, I'm fully well aware of it because my hands are covered with blood. I did this. That phrase, look at that. Does that sound like a guy from ISIS that might get saved? Exactly what Paul was. And he's got to live with that the rest of his life. And in the last letter Paul ever wrote, he still is so conscious that he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am worst. I'm the chief because I persecuted the church of God. Paul knew he was forgiven. But when you've done what Paul did, you are aware for the rest of your days of suffering. Secondly, Paul struggled with sin in his life as a believer. As I said this a few minutes ago, this is not something you can grow past. That's another bad bit of theology. You just grow enough and you don't have this struggle with sin. In fact, Paul, the mature believer, recognized more of the struggle than he had ever known before. In Romans chapter 7, verses 22 to 25, the apostle Paul, in the present, writes this, For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? And Paul's response is, thanks be to God, it's going to come through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where it's going to come. Do you see Paul's present struggle? Can, how many of you in here can recognize that struggle with sin in your own life? See, man, if we don't believe other parts of the Bible, we read this and we say, okay, I got that. that this, I don't need a doctorate to figure out what that means. I remember this struggle just yesterday. I was going through this exact thing. I could have penned this. I remember when I was asked to write a poem at the Naval Academy, and I was not much of a poet at the time, but I actually wrote a song based on a day where I had struggled with sin, and I knew I had sinned and fallen before God, and I took Romans 7 and just personalized it and put it on my own. And my prof actually liked it and told me I ought to try it more, and I was like, are you kidding, dude? It's poetry. <laughs> I don't do poetry. You know, I have a hard enough time just reading this stuff. But, but I got what Paul said. I mean, I wrote this song down because I was like, I understand that. That is exactly where I am at. Paul struggled against sin. He hated his pull in his life. And there's, there's only one way in this life to be free of that. That's just to give in and enjoy your sin. And once again say, I just forsake Jesus. Then the struggle stops. But that's not an option for a believer. And in fact, the more you want Jesus the more you're going to recognize your own sin. The more you crawl to the light, the more you see the darkness in your own soul. So that's another struggle Paul had in common with us. And then finally, here's Paul's struggles. It's not only that he caused suffering, 
not only the struggling he had and the suffering he had within, but then look what other people did to Paul. He writes this out in 2 Corinthians 11. This is the same letter where he said, our light momentary troubles. Here's Paul's description of his light and momentary troubles. 2 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. You know why they, the, the law was you had to stop at 39? Because at 40, they thought you would die. So to be kind, they gave you 39 lashes. Not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, five times. Does anybody want to bet what Paul's back looked like at the end of this? Why Paul says in another letter, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. You can read that one in Acts. And why did they stop stoning him at that moment? They thought he was dead. And then the believers had to come in and pull the stones off of him. And he got up and he was alive. Left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And anybody who wants to join my team, we have a sign-up list at the back. This is Paul's record. Paul obviously didn't buy the book to know he could speak this away from himself. He, he didn't get that book because he didn't have the good theology that we got today. I'm actually going to go with Paul. This is the apostle. This is a description of his life. What a list of suffering. This man who went through that says... And I've thought about this. I've considered it. I have, I have wrestled with this, and here's what I figured out. All of that, that is dust on the scales. That is nothing. Now be honest. If I told you, here's what you got coming in the next year, or five years, who in here would say, that's nothing? Man, this, this is not, I could take this. I mean, nobody would be wanting this. And I could keep adding this list because Paul didn't even know what was still ahead of him. Because there were more shipwrecks coming after this, we know from the book of Acts, being bitten by snakes, and it's all going to end. The last thing Paul saw was as he laid his head down on a stone and the sword came up over his head. It was the last thing he saw. Not to mention being abandoned by friends. This is a guy who knew suffering. And yet, Paul says, not worth comparing. How can he say that? Well, let's look at the glory to come. Now, I want you to understand how Paul does not deal with it because it's insufficient. And this is the way we want to deal with it, the way our age wants to deal with it. Notice in Romans 8.18, our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul does not point out all the good things in life. He doesn't say, well, there are those things, but look, there's a love of a mother. There's, there's a fellowship of good friends. There's good food and drink, and I've got to travel. Paul doesn't say any of that. See, that's what we want to do. Let's, let's figure out good things that might outweigh the bad things here in this world, and we do a valiant effort. But when you've lived what Paul's lived, that's not going to do it. Let me say, life is good because of God's common grace. Okay, when, when I had my grandchildren run up to me this morning, I mean, life is good. I like that. I enjoy that. And it is good because of, Paul's, because of God's common grace. But that's not Paul's point here, because when you go through the list of suffering that I just laid out a few minutes ago, that's not going to match up. 
But what does Paul turn to? Paul says the comfort is in the glory to come. Notice verse 18. It's not worth comparing with the glory that will be. It's not here yet. It's future, but it will be revealed in us. The comfort is the glory to be revealed. He is not speaking of our present experience. We want everything. The best-selling Christian book is your best life now. That's not what Paul says. And let me tell you, if you have your best life now, then your destination after death is not heaven. Let me just tell you, if this is your best life now, you better enjoy it. Because where you're going is anything but joy. You are not going to get your best life now. It's not possible unless you're going to heaven. That's right, Kelly. Okay? Paul is saying it's the glory that will be revealed in the future. The sufferings are part of this passing age, but the glory is part of the eternal age to come. And so Paul wants us to grasp that the key to overcoming all of the suffering and sorrow in this life is not found by denying it, nor thinking on the good things experienced in this life, but rather in focusing on the immeasurable joy to be found in the glory of the age to come. That's how we deal with the suffering of this life. We fasten our eyes on the glory of the age to come. Paul, I could have continued on in 2 Corinthians. He said, so after he said the, the eternal weight of glory is far greater than these light and momentary troubles, Paul says, so because of that, we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary. It's passing away. But what is unseen is eternal. And that's what God is bringing us. Same exact message as here. And so I want to unpack for just a couple of minutes the glory of the age to come. Now, I'm not going to put up all the scriptures. I've actually done a whole teaching series on, we called it creation to consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It was back in 2007. You can go to the website and you can unpack several teachings where I go through and give all the verses on these things. But I want you to sit back and hear, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, this is what awaits you. What we are told in Scripture, the glimpse that we have is that the glory that is to come is, number one, the curse is going to be removed. It's not that we'll have more good days than bad. There'll be more laughter than tears. It is that there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain at all. And there will be no more death. Now, you cannot get to that by picking out the best things in this life. Because I don't care what the best things are, there is still sorrow, there is still tears, there is still suffering, and there is death. And we do everything we can to get that out of our mind in this age, but it will come. But in the age to come, there will be none of that. The curse is removed. As we sing in the hymn, far as the curse is found, Jesus is removing it. He is pushing it back. He is taking it away. And in the age to come, there will be no more curse. There will be no more struggle with sin. There will be, Romans 7 will be a distant memory. We will be free from the penalty of sin. We will be free from the power of sin. You will no longer inside you feel that pull to say and do and be things that you know you ought not say, do, and be. That struggle will be there. In fact, it will not be there. In fact, there will not even be the presence of sin. Nothing. As far as you can see, there will be nothing but righteousness. And your every desire, the very heartbeat, the throb of your being will be, I only want to do what is pleasing to God. With my every thought, every word, every deed. That alone will be glory, friends, because I am so tired of the struggle and the fight and not being the man I want to be, much less who God wants me to be. In that age, there's going to be, how about this? Think of what's going on in our culture right now. We're going to live in an age where there will be no more racism. There'll be no more videos of police 
doing questionable things with African Americans, and then people shooting innocent police back in response, and all of the back and forth we've got. In fact, the picture we have in Revelation is we are going to be there, black and white and yellow and brown and whatever other color there is, speaking in our own language, being in our own culture, and there'll be no problem. We're going to be the way God has made us to be. And it won't happen by us minimizing the differences. It'll be, we are made in the image of the triune God, the Holy Trinity. And we are many, but we are one, like that God. And all of our differences will be glory to God. There'll be no more problem. Will that be a good day? Oh, I long for the day when that's going to happen, friends. But we are a million miles from that right now. God's, we are no longer, in fact, going to be persecuted as believers. The more you serve Jesus, the greater the reward instead of the way it is right now. There'll be no more hearing and praying. I won't get any more emails that some Christian was drug out and killed for their faith. No more. It'll be gone. In that age, God's purposes in creation will find their fulfillment. And what that means is there's going to be blessing everywhere. You will not look anywhere where it is not dripping with the blessing of God. And the longer we are there, the more that glory and the more that blessing will expand. And we will see blessing upon blessing. It will grow. It will expand everywhere. And you are going to fully find and express all of your potential and everything you were made to be. You are going to, for the first time in your life, say, this is who I am. This is why I was made. Every fiber of my being is saying, yes, and nothing is stopping it. And I am growing in that for eternity, for eternity. I'm going to keep preaching for you, Elby. We are going to experience amazing fellowship with one another. We're going to have a meal here in a few minutes, and these are always good, but there's always our fellowship never really goes because we are always wearing fig leaves. We are always hiding from one another because if you knew what I was like, you would not like me. That's the way we are. We are hiding. On that day, we will know each other just like we are known. We will be open. We will be comfortable. We will have fellowship like you and I have never known. We will sit at the table of God at the amazing wedding feast, and it is going to be joy, and you are going to fellowship with the saints of the ages, and so am I. And even people where our relationship was messed up here, we are going to see, we are going to hug, we are going to fellowship and say, this is what we were made for right here around this throne. We are going to see the face of God. The amazing thing is it gets far better than what I've even said so far. You are going to open your eyes and you are going to see the face of God, which is why we were created and what you have longed for your whole life. We are always dabbling in sin because we know there's something else. But what there is that is else, what you are really looking for is going to happen on that day. You're going to look. You're going to say, that is what I have wanted to see. That is it. And it is there. And it's going to be forever. It's not a glimpse. It is forever. You can stare into that beautiful face. You can soak it in for all of eternity. And then finally, Last thing, which is what Paul is bringing up here, is as we bask, as we see God and we bask in his glory, it is going to penetrate into our very being so that we will share in and radiate the glory of God. It's not just that you're going to see it out there. That glow is going to come over you and I. It is going to envelop you. It is going to penetrate you, and it is going to radiate back out of you and me. That is what is to come. Notice what Paul says. I'm going to back up one verse before our text. Notice in verse 17 and 18, so you can see I'm not making this up. Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That we could bask in for days and days. If indeed we share in his sufferings, notice the suffering is there, in order that we may also share in his glory. If you share in his sufferings, you share in his glory. And then notice in verse 18, that's, that's why I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed where? 
in us. Now, some translations say to us, and the Greek can be understood either way. The, the Greek preposition ace means to or it means into, kind of a penetrating in. But I want you to see, you can argue the Greek either way, but what you can't argue is he's building it off of verse 17. And what he's building there in verse 17 is that we are going to share in his glory. And so we share in the glory of Christ, and that means Christ's glory will be revealed in us. The longer you are there, and we are fellowshipping, and we are seeing the glory of God, the more it's going to penetrate, and the more it's going to fill you, and the more it's going to resonate out of you. This is what we sang this morning as we were singing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. Did you notice in the final verse, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, slain by death, the God of life. Life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes. Because the power that radiates from the resurrected Christ, the glory that radiates from him is going to come into you and I and it's going to resonate and it's going to radiate out of you and I. That is the future that awaits you and I. Seeing God, your every cell will pulse and radiate with the glory of God, finding ultimate joy and fulfillment, and it'll be more the day after and more the day after, and it will grow throughout all of eternity. And if that's not enough for you, I got nothing else. That is what awaits you and I. And the Apostle Paul says, when you look at that, when you see that, everything else means nothing. I'm not going to take you there, but if you go to 2 Corinthians 12, we know that Paul himself was snatched up to the third heaven. And he says, I can't even explain exactly what went on. But Paul's saying, I saw it. I, I got just a taste. And that means all the other stuff is nothing. You beat me with rods. I don't care. You stone me, you beat my back till it looks like ground chuck. I don't care. You behead me, God will raise me back and put that head back on him. With those eyes, I will see him. And when that happens, I will radiate the glory of God and it will be everything I've ever longed for. And there is nothing this life can do that can diminish that or take that away from me. Friends, that's what it means for us. And I want you to see in a final thing, all of this is given to us in Jesus Christ. This is not something for the few. This is not something that you have to labor to get. It is God's gift to you in Jesus. Notice in verses 15 to 17, Paul says this, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. If you are here and you are in Jesus Christ, you have received the Spirit of God. You are adopted as the child of God. You are a co-heir with Jesus Christ. Everything he has from the Father, including the very glory of God, is yours in Christ Jesus. It is God's gift to you. In Christ, you're going to bear the glory of God. That for which you were made, for which you were created, it is yours. It is going to be given to you in Jesus Christ. How do we apply this? What does this mean for us? Number one, realize all this is only available in Christ. Paul's answer to this is not buck up, think a little bit different, learn this philosophy, buy this book. Paul's answer is this is only available in Jesus Christ. In another letter, Paul says, Christ is the hope of glory. That's who he is. Jesus is the hope of glory. Apart from him, your future is worse, not better. As bad as that litany of stuff I said is, the future that awaits those who reject Christ is worse. 
that words could not express. That those who say, I want nothing to do with God or his Christ, are given what they want. And they discover that is called hell. Because rather than seeing the face of God, we're shut off from it forever. Rather than basking in the glory of God, we live in a place where the glory of God does not touch. Rather than eternally receiving the grace of God, we're in the place that is bereft of that. We're left to our own devices. Rather than us radiating the glory of God and being full of God's glory the way we were made, we've become an everlasting horror to ourselves and everyone around us. This glory is only found in Christ. Apart from him, all the suffering in this life is just a foretaste of the suffering to come. But in him, we are guaranteed that these sufferings are light and momentary and not worth considering with the glory that is going to come. If you are here, I urge you with every fiber of my being, as serious as I can get right now, your only hope is in Christ. And the good news is you don't have to do anything. It's not about what we do. It's about what he's done. All of this is God's gift to us. It's God's gift to the apostle who had persecuted the church of God. And it's his gift to every one of us. Second thing is just a recommendation, and we're going to pray. I want to encourage you, meditate on the glory to come. How many of you get weary as you open up the paper every day and you see more suffering? I mean, it is. It's tough. It gets, it's to where, like, I don't want to watch the news. I don't want to open my email. I don't want to read the New York Times again because it's just, like, endlessly depressing. And I understand that. But the secret's not hiding from it. The secret is reminding ourselves that's just another speck of dust on that scale. But every time there's a speck drops on, God drops on another unbelievable weight of glory that is coming. And I'm going to meditate on the weight of glory that is to come because the more I see the suffering, the greater I know the glory is going to be. Friends, life is hard and it will harden us unless we remind ourselves of the glory that is to come. And I want to remind you, in this congregation, we are going to be engaged in this world. This world is full of suffering. We have a team in Cambodia right now. You want to know what a mess that country is after the Khmer Rouge got finished with it. No basic medical care, just all kinds of poverty and struggles and difficulty because people tried to force their own will onto a beautiful people created by God. And the solution is not for us to hide from that suffering, but to say, you know what? I have meditated on the glory to come. I know it is here. I am tasting it. And so I'm going to throw myself headlong into the human suffering that I see, and I'm going to be an agent in the hands of God to help do what I can to relieve that suffering now because I don't have to hide from it because I know however great the suffering is, the glory far exceeds it. And the only way we can do that and not be worn down is by meditating on the glory to come. Now, in the coming weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to be talking about habits of grace. The word, prayer, gathering together as a congregation and worship, coming to the Lord's table. In all of those ways, the point isn't checking off my list. I was a good boy. I read my Bible today. The point is I come and I say, God, I live in a messed up world. I need a foretaste of deliverance. I need a foretaste of glory. Would you speak to me today? It's not that I say, oh, well, I prayed. I did what I was supposed to. It's God, do you hear me? Do you see what's going on here? I need to talk to you, Abba Father. I need to speak to you right now because this place is a mess. 
but I know you see, I know you care. We gather as a church, not so we can check off our list, so we can do our little religious club. We come here every week because we're supposed to be getting a foretaste of this. It's supposed to renew us. It's supposed to shape us. It's supposed to change us so we can go back on. And as that onslaught of suffering comes, we can say, I know it's here. I don't deny it. I'm going to labor and work in the midst of it because I tasted, I gathered, I have seen what is coming. That's what we are called to do. So I want us to stand together and we're going to pray and I want us to ask God to be revealing this to us. And I hope as you leave here, I know I labored on both the suffering and the glory. I hope that catalog of glory, I want you to meditate on that. I want you to think on that. That's what God promises to you. It's not imaginary. It's real. And if you're in Christ, that's your destination. Father God, I thank you that we can come to you in prayer. I thank you that because of Jesus Christ, we have your ear. And Father, we don't have your ear because we got the right formula, because we did things right, because we're special. We have it because Jesus Christ has opened the floodgates of mercy. We have it because Christ has opened our access to your throne. And so, Father, as your children, we come and we say, Lord, we see the suffering in this world. Father, we don't hide our eyes or our mind from it. And we admit, Lord, that it is hard. And, Father, it can harden us. What sin does, Lord, it wreaks havoc and it can harden us. But Father, rather than doing that and meditating on that, Father, this morning we turn our eyes to you. And we thank you, O oh God, that you have revealed to us what is waiting for us. And Father, it's not something we can engineer. Lord, the best we could do would be a pale comparison. Father, it's hard for us to even grasp what it would be like to live without the curse, without pain, without sorrow, without suffering or sin or death. But, oh God, we are grateful that that is what is coming. Father, it's hard for us to imagine on the day when we wake up and there won't be a struggle with sin. My, my desires won't be wayward. They won't be wandering. My words will not inflict pain, but be sources of blessing. My actions will not pollute and create difficulty, but they will be service to you and to others and only serve to increase blessing. Father, when there won't be racism, there won't be divides, but Father, rather, we will be one and we will be gathered around your throne and I will see and hear my brother and sister who looks different and who speaks different and who's from a different culture and it will not cause fear, it will just increase my joy. That Father, you are so great, we have to praise you in different language. We have to praise you from different cultures and you are revealed in every genetic difference among us, oh God. Father, we long for that day. Father, when we're rewarded rather than persecuted, when your purposes are being so fulfilled, Father, it's resonating in our very being and we are shaking not out of fear, but out of joy and out of glory resonating out of us, Father, that as we see you, oh, Father, our souls will feast and it will be everything we have longed for. Father God, I pray this week for, for each of us that, Lord, you would sustain us by that foretaste of glory. That, God, it would build our hope, that it would fuel us in our passion for you and in our service to others. And that, God, whether we're tired or tempted, Father, whether we are struggling or even on our good days, that, God, we would keep saying and we would hear your, your Spirit speaking to us and saying, behold what is to come. You are going to see him. And when you see him, you are going to be like him. 
and your every word and every thought and every deed will radiate righteousness in the glory of God. And you are going to be full of God's glory. And you are going to love God. You are going to love one another. And everything you have longed for and created for will be given to you. Hang on. Father, let us hear that and let us walk in that and let us spread the joy of that. And Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray for those who do not know that. Father, I pray for those who are, we are eating out of the garbage dump. And God, you are spreading a feast. And Lord, we live in a city where there are many who would rather starve than come. Oh God, I pray you would send forth your Holy Spirit. I pray you would change their hearts. And God, I pray you would give us opportunities to speak to them and to tell them, oh, do you know what awaits you? Do you know what God has in store? It is so much greater. Stop playing in the mud and come to the glory that is to come. Stop eating out of the garbage dump and know God has a feast that you could only imagine. Lord, would you give us the opportunity to share that good, good news. Father, we thank you for all of this, for your great grace to us, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence, without fault, and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. Go in the peace and the joy of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.